Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 170th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Patrick Tucker. Patrick is the founder of True Measure Wealth Management, an independent RA based in Omaha, Nebraska, that oversees nearly $150 million of assets under management for 89 client families. What's unique about Patrick, though, is his background in business operations and financial management from having started his career at UPS and how he's translated those business management skills to run his own advisory firm, not necessarily to grow and scale the largest business he can, but to very intentionally craft an advisory firm to achieve his own personal goals instead. In this episode, we talk about how Patrick built his very intentionally designed advisory firm, the two niches he formed with executives from transportation companies and with small local business entrepreneurs like himself, how he splits his advisory fee structure between AUM fees for clients with portfolios he can manage and three tiers of flat planning fees from eight dollars to $16,000 a year for the clients in his niche who may have significant wealth but not in a liquid form to manage, the key business metrics that Patrick focuses on to ensure he's spending his time and the business resources properly, and the three Ps of personality, participation, and profitability that Patrick uses to evaluate each prospective client to decide if he wants to work with them in the first place. We also talk about Patrick's journey through the advisory business, why he decided to transition from the independent broker-dealer environment to the RIA channel, how he was ultimately able to nearly triple his business in the first two years after he dropped his affiliation with FINRA to go fee-only, why Patrick chooses to use contractors and outsourcers and keep his internal team very lean, and how Patrick does regular process reviews internally with his staff member to evaluate whether they're doing for their clients is really the right thing to do and whether it's really being done in the most efficient manner possible. And be certain to listen to the end, where Patrick shares how he overcame the growth imperative pressure that the industry tends to put on all of us as advisors, that we have to grow, grow, grow even if we don't really want or need to grow anymore for our own personal goals. The way Patrick's own path changed when it, by getting involved with Strategic Coach, and why he ultimately decided to launch his own coaching business for advisors to teach them how to craft their own intentionally designed businesses to serve their own goals, as Patrick did with his own firm. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Patrick Tucker. Welcome, Patrick Tucker, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Michael, I'm so so grateful to be here. It's really really excited to talk today. I, I'm I'm excited for the discussion as well. I you know we we've had a couple of of podcast guests recently. They've kind of talked about these journeys of you know building your business, growing it beyond you. You know, like adding the employees, adding the team, adding the infrastructure, figuring out how to do that and build that well, which is a a challenge unto itself. And and I feel like is has become this really active discussion in the industry overall. I, I, I've i taken and just started calling it the the growth imperative. Like it's sort of put out there as this absolute, like you must grow. You should always be trying to grow larger. There's sort of the saying, if you're not growing, you're dying. And yet I, I look out there at the landscape and as much as we all talk about, like you have to grow, you have to be bigger, you have to have economies of scale. If you want to compete in the marketplace, 
what I see in practice is every time you know, I'm a data nerd, like I pull out the benchmarking studies and look, I see solo advisory firms have never been more profitable than before. Advisors have never been able to more run more efficiently than they can today between all the different outsourcing solutions that are out there and the technology that's out there. And then when I look at all of this discussion about the growth imperative, I find it, it, it tends to come from certain places pretty specifically. It's the platforms usually that we, that we work with. Because you know, if you look at it from the perspective of like a, a broker dealer or an RA custodian, they only get to grow if either A, they add more advisors or B, the advisors they have get bigger. And the total number of advisors has not increased in 20 years. It's basically been a net decline since the tech boom, the 1999 tech boom. And so when the headcount isn't growing and the space isn't growing, the only way you get bigger is the advisors all have to grow. And, and we get what I find is this sort of top down from the platform's growth imperative. You have to grow. You must grow. You'll die if you don't grow. And if you can't grow, then uh, we got a big firm that'll buy you out. But when I get down to individual advisors, I just don't see that problem in practice. And I, I know you run this, uh, you know, like fascinating, hyper-efficient, like $150 plus million solo practice with just one other person and all of this technology and outsourcing. So I'm just, I'm, I'm fascinated today to talk about like, how do you look at this as a business owner when you say like, no, I don't, I don't need to grow a zillion employees and all that stuff to build a wonderful, successful practice. Like I'm, I'm going about it another way. Yeah, really. I've I've always gone about it a different way, and and I think it's interesting that you point out the the stagnation in in the marketplace of advisors because so so often when I hear from any of these platforms, whether it be you know a, a wholesaler for a, a you know a particular product platform or it's a custodial platform, all of them are always presuming that you know we're just going to have growth for growth's sake, and they don't really come at it from Hey, how, what are you doing to really run the business end of your business? And for me, I've always approached it firstly as a business. So I, I came into financial advisory work from more of a corporate finance background. I came from the, the big brown shipping company that many people know as UPS, right? And I was, I was there and I was really trained on, you know, that number nerd stuff that you talked about a moment ago where you're really measuring, you know, the efficiencies and the bottom line of things. And so for me, uh, oftentimes when I'm talking to other advisors or I'm looking at the, the businesses of other advisors, what they forget about is that if you're just going to randomly grow without really looking at the metrics of your profitability and what's going on inside your business, you know, you may have this little tiny cancer in your business, right? Where you're spending too little on marketing or too much on particular areas of your business that if you just scale for the, you know, the sake of scaling, that little cancer can become this very large cancer and kill you, right? And, and we've all seen that. We've seen it with big companies like Lehman Brothers back in the 08 corrections. And you, you mentioned the, the technology boom in, in 1999, you know, there was plenty of overnight successes that went away the next night. And that's because they had the cancer of, well, we don't actually have any revenue yet. We're just an idea, right? Well, and I think there's a powerful point there around not just the phenomenon of, of growth for growth's sake, which I think we're going to come back to soon, but uh, again, like the, the dynamics that happen when you've got other problems in the business 
and you approach it as growth is the answer, growth is the solution. Like if I was just a little bit bigger, I could afford to do this, I could afford to do that. We'd have a little more economies of scale, we could be a little more profitable. He says, I, I, you know, I've lived the phase of scaling now, you know, multiple different businesses as an entrepreneur, you know, I've seen so many advisory firms go through this and, and just like the, the truth that that moment never comes. You never grow your way through challenges in the business. What happens is dead. And I, I like, I, I love the sort of the cancer analogy that, that you give it, you know, if, if you can't figure out how to get the business operationally efficient when it's just you and one or two people. It doesn't get more efficient when you double the size and have more operation staff. You just end out with even more operational overhead and dead weight because they're doing things that are really inefficient, which means you need twice as much staff as you otherwise would have needed because they're doing things so inefficiently. And you take a not profitable practice and you just make it a bigger not profitable practice, but you're going to spend more time up at night because you have a much larger payroll obligation as a business owner you have to deal with. So you lose all the flexibility that you would have had the next time the downturn comes because you actually have to worry about things like making payroll. And the profits don't actually get better because inefficiencies just compound into larger inefficiencies when you get bigger. And and so when you start taking that away and you say, well, why are you growing? Like, why are you growing? <laughs> Suddenly it gets a lot more ambiguous, I find, for, for a lot of advisory firms. Right. Yeah. There's no real purpose behind what what they're doing. And, and I think complexity is what creeps in, right? When you're, you're going to just grow, well, then you need this support person or you need somebody to do this. And you're really not stopping to think about what are you about? What are you trying to do? What is your business for? And so I've spent a lot of time really trying to decide what my life should look like, what my business should support, not the other way around. And I think a lot of us, and I have done this, I'm sure you have Michael in those startup phases and at other times in business where you, the tables turn where you're really the servant to the business and not the other way. And in a, in a beautiful business like our industry provides, you can really design the business to support what it is that you're about and what you want to do. And there's lots of talk about things like growth and then you need processes. You know, that's the practice management buzzword we all hear a lot about is, well, what, you know, are you a process driven organization and you need systems and, you know, getting things done and, uh, and all of these kinds of things. But if you don't have that fundamental reason behind what it is you're about, what you're trying to do, who you're trying to serve, why you're trying to serve those people, you know, you can have all the processes in the world, but they're still going to be complex, inefficient, and they'll, they'll bury you you know, if you don't have a, a higher design around what it is you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, I, I love just the framing of, of, you know, starting to ask, you know, uh, like, how are you building your business to serve you so that you don't get stuck serving your business or, or becoming a slave to your business? Because it just it happens for so many of us. And, and I think particularly in, in the advisor realm and as the business model moves to Assets under management, you know the the you all, you could only complexify your business so much in the commission based world because every January first you wake up and you don't have any income until you go get new clients. <laughs> started anew, so you know when you start at zero every year, you don't tend to hire a lot of staff, you don't tend to add a lot of complexity. You're just you're mostly in continuous hunter mode. But you know when you build recurring revenue business models, and that can be 
most commonly AUM, but you know, subscription fees, ongoing retainers, it's anything that builds ongoing recurring revenue. And you serve your clients at all reasonably well, you end out with 90 plus percent retention rates, sometimes 97, 98% retention rates. And if you just do that for enough years, at some point, you accumulate a lot of clients <laughs> and you start hitting those complexity points and you start hitting those capacity limitations. And if you're stuck on growth is the only path forward and more, not even just growth, the only path forward, like more clients and then more people and more staff and more, more, more is the only path forward. The the complexity starts to creep in as the business compounds. And to me, that's where you start hitting this crossover where my business doesn't serve me. I serve my business and I become enslaved to my business. And you know, I, I've long said, you know, some of the the unhappiest advisory firm owners I know, in terms of re- really being unhappy in their businesses, are almost all at about two to three hundred million dollars under management, because that's the point where your staff grows beyond your ability to manage them all individually. Usually, by then, you're anywhere from about seven to ten employees, and you can't manage them all, and you certainly can't manage them all on top of your clients. and And growth hits a wall, and you're spending immense amount of time because you got your 152 clients and your nine staff members to manage and the growth is your responsibility and the payroll is your responsibility and all the other stuff is burdened on you. And and it's because you just kind of kept growing without a particular purpose or vision to it. And at some point you cross that line from I was building a business to serve my my life and my goals into now I'm stuck serving my business and and I'm enslaved to it. Right. I, I think where this comes from a lot of, in my opinion, and you'll, you'll see this, I think you see this probably when you're out speaking at conferences, certainly when I'm out either attending or speaking conf- at conferences, I see this all the time. There's this vanity that that is very prevalent, not only just in, in the advisory world, but in the entrepreneurial world in general, which is, you know, the, the vanity numbers of I'm a seven-figure business or I'm a, you know, six-figure business, these kinds of things. And, you know, this whole idea about extending Ex, you know, kind of extrapolating that your revenue numbers actually, you know, fall to the bottom line, right? So this idea of, you know, revenue is really just a vanity metric and, you know, your net profits is, is sanity, right? So revenue is vanity, profits are sanity and cash is king. And, you know, so trying to get people to understand this, that, yeah, you might have a $200 million firm with seven, eight, 10, 12, 14 people, and uh, yet you're only taking home, you know, this number because you've you've injected all this complexity. What if your business looked like this? You had the clients you loved, you know, you had more profits because you had less to do, less complexity. And I'm always astonished when I'm talking to people, you know, either again at these conferences or whatnot, that, you know, they're in on Saturdays for, you know, 10 hours a day and they're, they're there till late at night every single night. And I'm thinking, good grief, how difficult is it to really simplify your business down? And the other vanity metric that used to be really popular, Michael, and you probably remember this is, you know, you would see it in the, in the marketing pieces, the websites and whatnot was the, you know, the sort of snapshot of the whole firm, you know, the the team picture. And the larger my team was, the more successful I was. So look at all these people who work for me. Yes. We have 142 years of collective experience. Look at all, look at all the value that we're creating. Yeah. And I'm thinking, look at all the overhead and the the hassles and the, you know, all the meetings and the, you know, employee reviews and the, the benefits issues and just all of that. So I think that people should really realize that, 
you know, this is a, a wonderful business. You can have a wonderfully large business with all those people, but you know, it's it's not everybody that can can manage and run and should run a business that looks like that. And I think you're right. There's a lot of pressure on people to presume that they should just grow for growth's sake, that they're not as successful as the firm with, you know, whatever, 50 employees or whatnot, but they're successful enough for their own, their own lifestyle and their own way to serve their communities. I, I love that that line that you gave. Revenue is vanity, profits are sanity, and cash is king. And I, yeah, like the the you know the number of firms I've seen that have hundreds of millions of dollars of assets under management and millions of dollars of revenue, and then when you know when we get down to it, yeah, like they're you know they're they're like oh, okay, but like you make less than the employee advisor that works at the firm next door to you that took none of that entrepreneurial risk and all that other stuff but actually participates more in the income of their job than you do with with all of the with all of the things that you that you built that you know yes uh, you know more revenue at consistent profit margins does grow your income more revenue doesn't grow your income no no you really i mean what you find is and i think one of the things that oftentimes i tell people is you know i'm a business owner that happens to be a financial advisor not not the other way around, not an advisor that that is also a business owner. And it, it really comes down to, I've always approached running the business end of the business as the fun part of it. I enjoy that. And many, many advisors are just, you know, they're, they come more, you know, there's the, the various sides of the industry. There's the person that is more sales focused and they have, you know, good sales skills and they came from maybe a larger firm where that's how they were trained and how they grew up in the business. And then there's oftentimes the more technical person, the, you know, the analytic type, but oftentimes you don't find the type that is a, is a business operator. And that is a dangerous place for some of these firms because they don't really run the business end of their business. They just get more sales types. They keep growing. They got some good planners that are the analytic types, but they don't oftentimes then bring in that third personality to really make sure that they're being smart about the operation of the business, you know, and that's where that cancer that I mentioned earlier can creep in for them. Yeah. I like that framing that, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not an advisor who's also a business owner. I'm a business owner that just happens to be a financial advisor. That's that's just the the particular kind of business I decided to entrepreneur into. But then I'm I'm very struck by that. That I, you know, candidly, I, I find when I talk to a lot of people who sort of identify themselves as business owner types, it's because they've got this vision of you know building and scaling this business with dozens of employees and billions of dollars and and going that direction so i'm 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 particularly fascinated that you 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 approach this as a business owner i think sometime some people would characterize what you build like i run a solo firm with one employee uh, a lot of assets highly highly efficient built to support the the life that i want to live as as a quote unquote lifestyle practice and and sometimes lifestyle practices i think used pejoratively to imply like you're not a serious business, you're quote, just a lifestyle practice, which is a connotation I never liked. But uh, to me, you really run the other end of it. Like I'm a business owner, I have to be a uh, financial advisor. I approach this and running it as an effective business. 
and I'm not running a thing to have dozens of employees and billions of dollars. Yeah, it's you intentional. Build something different. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's very intentional. You know, I, I mean, from the get go, I've always taken the approach with clients that I was hiring them. You know, not the other way around. So when I'm when I'm interviewing with a potential prospective client, you know, they oftentimes walk in the door with, well, what can you offer me and those kinds of attitudes. But in my mind and in my approach and the way that I run those meetings, it's always about, are you, you know, sort of the proper fit for my business? And I, you know, there's a long standing person that's, you know, sometimes polarizing in the industry and a bit older now, but Nick Murray used to use the, the analogy of the arc, right? That you allow so many people onto your arc, like Noah's arc. And I think that's a really valuable piece of his guidance was really look at those folks that you're hiring. Do they fit? And, and I, I actually use a three-part test when I'm deciding to hire someone. And I'm, I'm really trying to not allow what I would call pitas into my practice, right? Pain in the, right? And so I have what I call my three Ps to avoid pitas. And so it's a, it's a three-part test. The first part is their personality. Do I like them? And do they like me, right? Are we going to have a nice relationship? Are we going to enjoy our time together? Because this is going to be truly a, a long-term gig. I'm going to be around these folks for potentially decades. So do they like me? Do I like them? That's the first P, the personality. The, the second P is what I call participation. And so many people put up with the situation, if you're going to be an advisor to someone and really that's what you're doing. You're not just talking about the markets and you're not an investment management person only. You're truly a consultant. You're truly an advisor. They have to participate in that process. And, you know, you've probably had this experience, Michael, being in the, in the business as well and being in the trenches where you, you know, you ask for this information from people and they bring you some kind of a, you know, summarized spreadsheet or something, you know, or, or even, or even if that, you know, like, this is the third time I have requested like this one you know copy of a prior statement that I need in order to figure out what's going on with that account over there. And it's been three requests in four weeks. And you said you want to do planning and we've got no place. And I'm frankly kind of getting a little frustrated here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the, analysis, it's the analogy of you going to the doctor and just telling the doctor, I hurt. And the doctor's like, okay, what, what do you mean you hurt? Where do you hurt? What's hurting? Tell me what's going on. How did it start? And you just go, no, I hurt. And, and, you know, and he keeps asking further questions to try to understand, is it, you know, is it in your legs? What, what do you mean? Your chest is hurting? No, I, I, I hurt. He's not going to figure out what's wrong with you. And so this whole participation thing is a very common problem. And people are, you know, there's, you know, sort of the psychoses around this, that many people are whatever, they're embarrassed by their, their financial decision making in the past. They're you know, trying to correct a, a problem in a relationship. They want to have a little more money before they show you everything. Oh, they're going to make a quick change. Whatever their reasons are, it doesn't matter. You're here for my help. I need this information. So if they don't participate, they're not going to get in, you know, in, in the analogy of Nick Murray on my arc. So that's the second P. And then the third P is profitability. And so they have to be profitable for me to work with. And I have to be valuable in return to them. I have to be able to bring a, a significant amount of value for what I'm going to charge them, whether that's, you know, kind of a recurring fee model or an assets under management model, which are my two ways of charging clients. And 
And for me, I'm really looking at, you know, they might be great people. I really love them. I can get along with them. They might be participating, but, you know, if I can't really fit them in, in the right manner, meaning from a profitability sort of, you know, per client standpoint, then I, I really have to help them find a different way to get the things that they need. And so I've been very selective about that and made those mistakes a couple of times where I, you know, violated my own rule, you know, and, and let somebody in that was, you know, not the nicest person or didn't participate the way I should have, or wasn't as profitable. And they became a PETA, they became a pain in the ass. And I, I really had to end up letting those people, you know, move on at some, in some way in the future. And that's a very expensive, you know, way to conduct yourself in business. And so, you know, learning that early, if someone's listening to this, if they're early in the business or they're going to start their business, you have to really take that attitude of, these people, you know, I'm letting them in. It's not the other way around. I love the framing and and just the sort of the three P's of of personality, right? Do I like them? Do they like me? Because I, I mean, I just think about this very granularly that like I'm going to sit across from them several times a year for like a decade or two. So if I don't like these people, like. I'm going to not be looking forward to the meeting. It becomes negative. At some point, I'm going to be worrying about it or dreading it or subconsciously trying to avoid it or defer it. Like it's just, it's not a good relationship. It's not going to be good client value. You know, participation. We've all had those clients where it's frustrating. Like, I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to help you, and you're paying me to help you, and you won't give me the information I need to order to do it. So those become frustrating clients. You don't have to set yourself up for frustration. And just the profitability piece, you know, I, I, I mean, I think so many of us end up with these, you know, air quotes, accommodation clients, right? Like I, I felt like I had to take the client because such and such and so and so reason, even though they're not very profitable for me. And, and, you know, what do we end up doing? Like, well, I guess I'll take them. I just won't meet with them as often. I don't kind of scale back my service for them. And, and like, we do that to, to rationalize it and to justify it. But all, all it really says at the end of the day is like, I'm going to take this client, take their money, and then try not to do very much work. It's not a very positive relationship with the client when that's the environment that you have set up for yourself. And and I feel like so often we just get into it. You know, Alan Moore calls this shooting on yourself. <laughs> like we we should on ourselves. Right. I should take the client. I I have to do this. I should be growing because the industry says I I, I need to. I should be doing this. I should be doing that because because quote everyone says. And, and, and then we get stuck in these traps of, you know, uh, as you put it, like clients that are PETAs or more generally these scenarios, like how do you get to a point where your business controls you? Well, the starting point is you take whatever clients come in, regardless of whether they're actually going to be good fits or PETAs. And then you become enslaved to the PETAs that dominate your, your schedule and your, and your mindset. 100%. Yeah. I think accommodation is a really you know, it's a slippery slope into complexity. You know, it's like the, when you're, you're sliding with your children, it's like that little top of the sled, you know, and it's, oh, I think I'll just go down this one time. And pretty soon that's, you know, you've got 17 sleds that you're going down and, and it's just really hard to run a business. Well, it's really hard to serve those other clients that, you know, really fit beautifully into your, in your business model well, and so you're really doing them a disservice by taking in, you know, I love that, you know, by shooting on yourself, you're really shooting on all your clients that are already in the, in the system. And, 
And I, I think it's, um, you know, it's not always lack of business acumen that does this. I think many, many advisors are very good people and they're very much a, a giver type personality. And I, I think that leads to sort of this bleeding heart mentality where you, you end up at your own peril trying to help people that you shouldn't. And so, you know, putting good systems in place, I, for, you know, and I've, I've made this mistake. That's the only reason I, you know, I've built systems to try to prevent it a couple of times. Um, you know, my twice in my career, actually, I had to fire my largest client because they were a, a giant PETA. And I, so I used to fire, you know, a PETA every year on my birthday as a birthday gift. And uh, <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I, uh, I love that, actually. Uh, I, so I, I was at a firm long ago that that did a similar thing. So uh, we were a little bit of a bigger team there. There were 10 people in the firm and the staff every year got to pick their top three pitas to fire. And so, like, we would look forward every year to the end of the year, and like, not for the holiday party or like the the end of year bonuses. It was because like you were finally going to get to the point where you would never have to again take a call from that one client that you always dread. Like the uh, the email comes in, or the phone call comes in, or the voicemail comes in. You know, Mister Smith on hold for you. I'm like, oh God, I have to pick up the phone. Right? And yeah. Take this. That regret when you see it. Yeah, I was like, that was the that was the gift to the team in that firm. I loved is uh, on your own, like that's your gift to yourself on your birthday. I'm going to fire. I'm going to fire my biggest pita every year. It was great. It was liberating. I, I mean, the la- I, I haven't had to do it in a while because I've been better at selection, you know, for several years. But the last one I fired was a guy that that would all. So I worked with him years ago when I was at UPS. So I had known him a long time, and he was you know, sizable, sizable client and every, so you know how in some corporations they measure your loyalty based on how early you get there and how late you stay, right? So there's this implied, like, how dedicated are you really, Michael? You know, you get here at, at eight, you know, every day and you're gone right at five when I'm here at six thirty. Yeah. <laughs> Bob stays until seven at night. Yes, so yes. like, so he came from that environment. So every Friday, this guy would call our offices at like 4.59 on a Friday. Oh my gosh, just to make sure like, if I'm paying you your fees, you better be staffing the desk until the end of office hours. Right, right. So he'd leave me this silly, you know, hey, just want to, you know, he would have some reason to leave a voicemail. And it was just like, okay, enough with this shit. So <laughs> it, it's it's really, really... Uh, a great tradition. And I, I loved your, your office one. It should have been like PETA punting, you know, party or something where you could use a, an alliteration like that, but man. I like that. All right. So that like, that'll be our thing. If for anyone who's a team, uh, like if you get one takeaway from this, you have to have an end of year PETA punting party or, or if you're on your own, this is going to be one of your birthday presents to yourself. When you hit, when you hit your birthday this year is, we are giving you permission to fire your biggest PETA. Even if it's your biggest client, you can grow through it. Now, when I, when I speak on this subject, Michael, sometimes people are like, oh, I really struggle with this idea, though. And I think one of the things that advisors struggle with in general, and, the, and it ties into this whole growth thing that we've been having this conversation around, is they live in a little bit of a scarcity mindset where they're not going to be able to replace this person. 
you know, and what they don't associate with is all the energy, the resources of their team, of their, their own personal resources, and just the, the drag it is on their whole system. When you free yourself from that, it gives you all the energy, all the openness you need to go find, you know, somebody else that's going to fill that spot. And I, I learned one time this lesson very well. I was on the phone with one of these kind of PETA clients when, you know, a very large opportunity, you know, I missed because I, I missed a call from that person. I let it go to voicemail, that kind of thing. And, you know, I regretted that. I'm like, gosh, you know, if I'd been on this damn call with this person, I would have been able to attend to this other situation, you know, more likely to get it, that kind of thing. So you really, really need to account for, you know, the energy drain it is for you and your team. I love the framework to that as as well, that like the challenges of the scarcity mindset. If, if your mindset is is you have to keep every single client, you have to work with every single prospect you meet because you you may never get another chance for one, you'll live with what you get, right? Like you're, you, you're going to inflict that upon yourself and then get stuck with your PETA clients and get stuck with the energy that they take away and, and all the challenges that go with it. If your mindset is there's always more clients out there. If this one doesn't work for me, I'll just find the next one. And I'm not going to have even more energy to find the next one because I don't have to do the energy and draining process of the one who's already a bad personality fit, a bad participation fit, or a bad profitability fit. If your mindset is, I'll find another one that's better, then you usually do. And if your mindset is that you got to take this one and and just deal with it, then you do. But one leaves you a lot less happy along the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it shows up everywhere in, in the industry. You know, you'll see it at conferences where there's that. Typically, it's, I don't know if it's always a newer person, but it's somebody that's maybe not been as through as many experiences in, in the business. But, you know, you'll see this with the advisors that don't want to share, you know, ideas or are worried about even in their own sort of backyards, you know, like I'll, I'll meet with I'll meet with an advisor anywhere. And, you know, I, I was with breakfast or with another advisor at a breakfast here recently in, in my hometown. And, you know, he's a younger guy and he was worried about, you know, talking to me about different things for various reasons. And I said, look, that office building right there, I could make a living just on the people in that one building. You have nothing to be fearful about. I don't, you know, I'm not going to go try to figure out who your clients are or any of these kinds of things because there's just so many it's there's an abundance of people who need guidance anybody that is worried about those kinds of things i really think is it's their own mental limitations that are getting in their way of of you know the business that they desire well and i love how you had put it earlier that it, it it's about creating systems to to manage and handle these situations right like figuring out in the moment am i going to take this client or not like it's sort of hard right uh you know well i lost one recently so i'm kind of focusing on getting revenue back or you know something happened today that's kind of pushing me i feel like i want to get one more but when you create a framework like look here's our three criterion here's our three p's like if they're not comfortably checking all three of these boxes i got to be honest to my system and say and say no it gives you a system. It gives you a framework. It makes it easier. What I find for so many firms, you know, the like the the challenge is never really that you take an accommodation client. I mean, just like to be fair, one is not going to blow up your business. The problem is that 
when you take an accommodation client, you actually do th- two things. You you take the accommodation client and you establish a mindset and a system about how to take clients that don't fit your business. And once you ingrain that system, the system's there and the system stays. So the next time you get an accommodation client, well, I already know how to handle accommodation clients. You know, we put them into this thing and we do this uh, downscaled stuff, but it's still sort of okay. And then we'll take them so we don't have to make them feel bad and reject them. And and we get stuck, well, like, then I have to do it. I have a system to do it. So of course I'm going to do it. And, and suddenly you've got 10 and 20 and 30 accommodation clients and that's a business problem. It, it's it's not actually the clients that if if you take the accommodation client, you start creating accommodation systems, and the accommodation systems are are what ultimately get you. So if you're trying to avoid it, you know how how do you make a different system? How do you make a different process? You know, uh, well, I never want to reject someone. Okay, well then, you know, do the homework once. Find three to five other advisors in your area for whom your C and D clients are their A clients, because no matter where you are on the food chain, your C clients are someone else's A clients. Like find someone else where that's a fit and do the client a service and let them work with someone who will treat them like an A rather than your C. And if you create a system, if that's your system about how you deal with clients that aren't a fit, now you have a structure. Now you have a system, right? It, you know, I'm going to find you someone that's an even better fit than I am. Who can be upset about that conversation? Right. It's it's like the early warning light on your dashboard or your vehicle. It's telling you, hey, I'm not going to stall out and stop working right now, but there is something you should check out, right? And so these systems allow you to go and have a way to be valuable to these people. So even if they don't fit, they, they are a pain in the ass for your system. As you just stated beautifully, they they may need some help and they may actually be better served going elsewhere. And and that person that can serve them is benefited. So everybody wins in that. And so if you keep in that kind of a mindset, you will always be you know a person of value, uh, whether those people were referred to you or not, whether they just found you out you know somehow through your marketing or whatever. It doesn't matter. But the, the, this idea of continuing to grow a business that is, you know, driven for you as, a, as an owner of your business, whether you're in a larger firm or not, is such a critical thing. And managing KPIs, managing metrics that matter to you, you know, is something that people don't even know how to keep score in their business. You know, they don't really know the distinctions, even in our industry, they don't know the difference between you know, a profit and loss statement and a, and a statement of cash flow. They, they don't know how to look at those things and realize that, oh, by the way, there's things that aren't on your profit and loss statement that are in your statement of cash flows that are probably, you know, affecting why you look at your P&L and say, I should have this much money in my account. And I look at my account and I only have this much money because I don't understand these things because I'm too busy elsewhere. So can you give us an, uh, an example of, of just like what are, what are things that we tend to miss of like looking at our P&L and not, not thinking about it from a, a statement of cash flows end as well? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a number of things that, that people, you know, so let's look at business owners in general and financial advisors in particular, you know, how often do people really look at their, their you know, income statements or their profit and loss statements? They, they don't look at them very often. They might look at them when the CPA is asking for them for the tax planning. They might look at them when the bankers are asking for that to renew any lines of credit or things of this nature. And they might look at them, you know, maybe quarterly if their revenue flows that way. And they just look at that PL and they say, 
hey, bottom line says I made $200,000. What they don't know is they distributed a bunch of money for, let's say they do have a, a, a line of credit or some kind of outstanding debt. When you make a payment on debt, the principal payment doesn't show up on your profit and loss statement, only the interest portion. So depending on the, the kinds of debt that you have, if you distribute profits, you know, you're not going to see those things in there. So there's a number of types of things that, that impact these areas. So when you're, you're actually running your business's scoreboard, you should be looking at pretty frequently. I look at most advisors should, and, and I do, and I, when I'm coaching advisors, I have them look at, you know, on a monthly basis, I have them look at their profit and loss, their balance sheet, and a statement of cash flow at a minimum. Now, you know, not many advisors have too many accounts receivables or accounts payables, those kinds of things, but trying to understand what impacts, you know, their statement of cash flow from that standpoint, you know, not a lot of advisors have inventory, for example. So those kinds of things aren't impacting them. So it's predominantly a cash business, but even understanding the difference between cash accounting and and accrual accounting is a is an interesting thing. And and it's because a lot of guys that are in our industry actually were never that wasn't the training that they had, whether, you know, college or otherwise, they were, you know, maybe a finance major and they had less accounting or, you know, more of the investment principles, or they were just a, you know, general business major or something along those lines. So, so talk to us a little bit more about your journey. You, you mentioned you were UPS uh, early on, which I know is, is sort of a, a company legendary for its focus on uh, like measuring everything and making it all more efficient, right? You know, the, the, they're, they're the logistics company now, not just the package delivery company that we knew of, of old. I, I think it's UPS that, that was, it became legendary for like doing the math and actually figuring out that the frequency of accidents that occur on left turns are high enough that it is actually better to make three right turns and go around the block, even though it takes longer and it slows the average package delivery because it slows it by less than the time that's lost on an accident that only occurs 0.1% of the time. Like someone actually did that math and figure it out as a company policy. It's better to always make three rights than a left. Right. That's correct. Yeah, I did. I grew up my, my very first job. Actually, while I was in college, I was, I was in a, I had a degree already in accounting and then I was continuing on and I ended up with a, a finance and accounting degree. And so I was looking for internship while I was in college and couldn't find anything, uh, the particular time I was looking. And so I, I, ran over to UPS to sign up to load trucks, you know, and do that kind of work for the summer. And they're always hiring college kids and it's good pay. And the person noticed that I hadn't had an accounting degree already and asked me if I wanted an intern. I'm like, heck yeah. You know, that's what I was looking for. So I, I started with them in my college days and I worked for UPS for about 11 years in their finance group, you know, did everything from, you know, corporate accounting work to audit, to stock administration, 401k administration. So I did a lot of different things. And one of my very last jobs there, like many companies have gone through now, they were starting to consolidate accounting offices. They used to have accounting offices pretty much in every every state. They would have regions of the country called districts, and they were predominantly in within a state's border. And so, right. well, because, you know, companies been around long enough, like I, I believe UPS 
well predates those those fun things like computers and fax machines. So at, at some point, I mean, if you you know if you want to keep track of the the finances and business, the local office, like you would have local accounting for all the local location. Yep, they're well well over a hundred year old company, and and so yeah, so they the last job I was doing was basically consolidating these various locations into regional locations and and terminating people, which was not my favorite thing. I I really was a people guy, and I I always appreciated you know helping the executives and the employees with you know four hundred one k decisions and how to calculate contribution amounts and their stock plans and things, and so. I was looking at doing the investment management side of the business as a side thing back in the day. And I was, uh, I had enrolled in some CFP coursework from the American college. And, and so I was looking for people to help come in and talk to these employees that I was laying off these executives that I was basically retiring. And so I had to bring in attorneys and financial advisors and things to talk to them. And I was looking for an advisor uh, during one of these shutdowns, and I called one of the CFPs in the community because I wanted a CFP to come in, and I also wanted to ask him about my curriculum I was taking. So I was sort of selfishly inquiring about that. And long story short, he he happened to be an American Express financial advisor. So back when they they used to be called that back in the day, and IDS Life and all of it, I ended up you know, hiring him and he ended up recruiting me to leave UPS and come into this industry via American Express Financial Advisors. And so I started there. I came in in a little different role because I was accustomed to a a pretty nice corporate salary and stocks and had, you know, three young children and three of my boys were born. I have six, six sons in total, but I was halfway down that. Six, six boys. Six okay. boys, no daughters. So I was three in at that point, left UPS and started with American Express in a management role. I was training new advisors, believe it or not, even though I had not ever been one. And it allowed me to have a, a little different compensation structure that I had negotiated with them and, and did that for about a year and a half. And um, then eventually got a call one day from a local large regional bank it's founded here in Omaha where I'm where I'm currently located and and the person that was calling was a former American Express financial advisor who is now running this regional bank's wealth management and investment management division and so he was calling looking for somebody for one of their branches see if I knew anybody and I ended up bringing over a small group and we started their financial planning division for this bank. You know, it was a really great experience. I learned a lot about the inner workings of private banking. You know, this was a, a very well-known institution in our community, had a lot of good ties. So I, I met a lot of really great people. And, um, you know, my UPS background allowed me to, to have a really strong focus on transportation executives. Those guys all knew me. Soon after I left, UPS went public. So that helped, you know, those clients uh, that I was working with and others that I knew that became clients needed help because they had this tripling of their their net worth and now a, a public stock instead of a private stock. And so in 2001, I, I moved into my own firm 
I, I really started. So you, you you moved out from the bank and into your own bank. firm? Yep, all into my own firm. And I really started what is now known as a hybrid. It really wasn't called that in 2001. But I found a local broker dealer that would allow me to keep my some of my insurance and, and some of the, the business that I needed uh, you know, as a registered rep. And then I started my own RIA and did that until about 2006 when I, I finally dropped all those licenses and went fee only as a SEC registered registered investment advisor in the, in the early 2000s and have done that ever since. I had an agency for a while. It was really inexpensive to have an insurance agency, $75 a year in Nebraska to do that back in the day. And so I, yeah, I offered, uh, you know, the fixed, yeah, it was incredibly cheap, offered all, you know, the fixed insurance solutions through that agency for a number of years. And then eventually, like I said, moved into the fee only world. So I've been doing, you know, really the fiduciary side of things. Most of my, my time as an independent, which started in 2001. So, so Talk to us about the transition from when you were going from bank environment, like you know, uh, corporate structure, salary, team resources, all that kind of stuff, and then made this decision to sort of do the Wild West thing for particularly what it would have been in 2001 of, uh, I'm going out as a hybrid when almost no one was a hybrid. RAs were hardly known then. What was that transition like and what were you visioning in that at that time for what you were trying to go create. Yeah. Well, it was, it was an interesting transition. I did the analysis of the client relationships that I was, I had formed with my UPS executive clients, the new clients that I had acquired at the bank. I did the numbers, you know, and just said, this is, this is very doable. If I run an operation that looks like this, the profit margin should, you know, be very favorable. And, uh, you know, even calculations of, you know, which clients I thought were, you know, less probable of following me over, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I found an office that was already set up and I literally was able to, you know, r- resign, if you will, at the bank and drive across town. I had my office already, you know, ready to go and walked, to, you know, drove across town, which in Omaha is 20 minutes, you know, unlocked my office door and I was up and running. And, you know, and that, situation i did a lot of preparatory work with you know having to say like how do you just get get going that fast in a world where these i mean heck just even now getting an ra approval takes a while sometimes weeks sometimes months depending on what your state you're in i'm imagining they were probably not a lot speedier and more efficient than with less technology driving these processes yeah so it's you know a lot of that you can do ahead of time and you know we can talk later about some of the other coaching and, and whatnot that I do, but you, you can prep a lot of that stuff ahead of time. Back in, in that time, the SEC registration numbers were lower. You used to have to be at 25 million or higher, and now it's closer to the 100 million. And so, you know, having that all done ahead of time, having my employment agreements with the firm that I was at, the bank that I was at, reviewed. So I knew exactly what I could and couldn't do, you know, legally. I didn't want to violate any you know, I didn't want to get in a big fight with a big institution because I would lose that one. I happened to find an attorney. Well, I looked for attorneys and, you know, being a prominent business in our community, they they were smart in that they had used every law firm in town. So 
that they were, you know, there was conflicts, right? Nobody could work with them. Right. If you, if you do some business with every law firm in a small town and lawyers generally won't take engagements that may present conflicts of interest, you could basically tie up all the lawyers in town that have any experience. Yes. So that had happened. So I found one particular firm that had a, a state senator as the principal of the firm who was not conflicted. So I decided to use them figuring, you know, my simple mind was if I needed a little clout, he has some political clout, he could help me make it happen. So I had all those agreements looked at. At the time, my agreement, Michael, was a non-solicitation agreement. And so because I was in the, in the business of having relationship with these clients, you know, my concern was how do I how do I do this when I can't solicit them? So I, I asked my attorneys, you know, how do I, how do I tell people what I'm doing without soliciting them? And he said, you do what you just said. You, you tell Mr. and Mrs. Client your plans to leave, exactly what you're doing, and that you cannot, you know, that you're prohibited with your agreements with the bank from soliciting them. And by telling them that you can't solicit them, you're effectively soliciting them. <laughs> <laughs> but you're doing it literally with the words of saying, I am not soliciting you. I am not I, soliciting I, you. So I like, I'm, I'm good. These rules are written by lawyers. Oh my goodness. <laughs> like I, yeah. So it worked uh, wow. beautifully. Yeah. So it was, it was perfect. So they all knew exactly what I was doing, where I would be, that my cell phone number was the same and that my, you know, on my voicemail on my cell phone, I had my new office line, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, my clients were, you know, they all came over very, very quickly. And I was literally up and running, you know, immediately. Now I, I had some of my bigger learning in, in life about the, f- the flaws of being a commissioned producer, you know, a registered rep is a, is a sales producer. I, I was going to ask, so like you, you said you went out hybrid so you could keep insurance and brokerage licenses and then also start the RA. So I'm presuming that means that the bank, like this was not purely classic bank trust business. You like you had a brokerage affiliation at the yeah. bank as well. Yeah. So the bank had, you might remember the, and I don't know if they're still around. I believe they are. Bysis was a, a small. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Actually, my my first broker dealer role, we wrote all of our insurance business through Bysis. Yes. Life, disability, long-term care. Absolutely. Right. They had a, a, a full brokerage line, oftentimes in small banks. And so they used um, BISIS for their, their insurance work and their mutual fund work. And while I was at the bank, you know, I was looking for an AUM model. And this was, you know, late 90s. So, you know, C-shares were the common way to do sort of an asset under management process. And I was looking for... You know, I wanted a fee-based account. They didn't have one. They they finally uh, allowed me to bring one in while I was there, and so I had established, you know, quite a few fee accounts. And when I moved to my new institution, that custodian allowed me to just transfer those accounts that were in my clients' names at the other firm with a signature to my firm. And so I didn't have to repaper. I just had to have a signature from the client that said, "Yes, we'd like to work with Patrick now." you know, the same account, but now with Patrick's new firm, not with the bank. And so that was how I moved a lot of assets very quickly. I show advisors when I'm coaching them now, there's still some ways to do that out there. Oh, interesting. So from the client's end right there, they're, well, granted, the systems were a little bit 
differently structured uh, then, but in essence, like they're they're already on an advisor platform with uh, with an RA custodian. So it's basically just here's the updated advisor agreements, here's the updated LPOAs for the new firm, and not the and not the firm they used to be with, and like boom, now they're up and running with you on the new platform. Yep, all the data is there, no tax consequences. So yeah, so that works very very well for me to do that. I did. I did lose a very large client in that transition, which I talk about in some of my videos and things, and and that I had while at the bank, I got sucked into sort of the, you know, the drug addiction of commissions, right? The the big, you know, you mentioned it earlier. Every January first, you start over, and and I I sold really. I got away from my principles of of what I really got into the business to do, and I sold a. Uh, very large annuity to a client, and he happened to be one of the private bankers, and his, you know, his wife was the the client that bought the large annuity from me. And turns out, you know, as I was making that transition, you know, they were less than enamored with me leaving the bank, and they were asking different questions about the annuity. And literally, the very first week in my new office, I had a meeting with him, and he he came in with his his accounting. You know, his, his. I don't think the person was a CPA, but the person that that guided him on tax work, tax preparer. And I could just tell that, you know, the attitude of the, the, you know, just the. Yeah, when when someone's really upset and they're coming yeah. in for the meeting, you know, like, oh, okay, yeah. this is really, this is not, not going to be a good meeting. No, so they they actually, you know, they ended up pulling their accounts with me, and they were a very large client. They had about ten million dollars with me. You know, a couple of their friends that I had met through them didn't follow me over. So it was a very good lesson for me. So I don't want anybody to think that like everything was smooth in my transition. Part of what I teach and coach now is from those things. And and the the confusion that happened that I learned in retrospect was, you know, I couldn't fully act as really a fiduciary, as a, a truly, you know, a person that is is providing guidance for a fee, I, I was sometimes that, and sometimes I was a commission-based guy, and that confused people. And this client was very confused by that. Didn't you know? Nobody that doesn't do this every day is going to remember all the in and outs of you know how you were compensated in a in a particular product sale or whatnot. And and so it taught me a, a really good lesson early that you know you have to pick what it is you're doing. So all these advisors out there that are you know, in the midst of this, you know, they're fee-based, they're not fee-only. And the confusion in our the language of our industry can really be confusing to your clientele and it can muddle down and water down your message and your value proposition. And it really certainly did that for me and was one of the reasons I moved very quickly to, to go fee-only was because I wanted to be able to say to people that, you know, our interests are truly aligned, you know, and not some of the time they're aligned. So you said you had kind of been caught up or in, in entangled in the, in the commission. So can you just talk about more of the, of what that meant. It's just this kind of the, the income dynamics of just boy, those, those big upfront hits of being able to, to lump some dollars at once instead of getting paid out over advisory fees over the span of multiple years was, was just uh, needed the dollars or just kind of got used to the big dollar coming in? Like, was that the dynamic? I think it was mostly my ego, honestly. I think that I got, I got away from 
why I was doing what I was doing. Why was I designing this business the way that I wanted to? And I got sucked into the whole idea of, I mean, this was a $2 million annuity. So it was a sizable annuity. And so the, the payday. Oh, so back then, like that's a hundred to $140,000 payout, five to 7%. Exactly. So it's a very large payout. So my, you know, my ego of all those things that you, you lose sight of what you're doing. And so it ties back into our, you know, the, like just growth for growth sake. So I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting sucked into like, I'm already making X and here, here's another way to hit my production numbers and really blow them up. And I completely got sidetracked from my own objective of, of really building a recurring revenue business, which is why, you know, I wanted to get into the, the fee only space in the first place. That's why I was doing that in the mid to late nineties when, you know, it wasn't brand new then, but like still people today are talking about, it kills me a little bit, how to transition to fee only. I'm like, really? People don't know how to do this. It's been around a long time, you know, more than 20 years. And um, so I, I just, lost sight of my own value proposition and my own objectives. And it's very, very easy to do if you don't have good systems, if you don't have a good methodology to remind you of what you're about. And I lost that. And part of the reason I lost it is that in a culture like that, it is a sales culture. It is a production culture. And for any of your audience that, you know, works there now, they have to recognize that the whole idea that, that they talk about your gross commission. They're not talking about your, your bottom line, your, your own compensation. They're talking about you, they're, all the rewards, all the conferences and all the, the trips and the things are all based on what your gross production was, not what you kept. And, and that is very easy to lose sight of, I think, sometimes. Well, and just the, the nature of how the system is set up. Again, we were, we were talking about it a little bit at the at the beginning, you know, when, when, when platforms have businesses that only grow because their advisors grow and do more stuff because it's hard to add net advisors when the whole net headcount is flat and shrinking, you know, like what do you do? You know, you, you create sales contests, you create competition amongst people, you put the top producers up on pedestals, not just giving them rewards, but like, maybe prizes or trips or or special conferences, but just you put them up on a pedestal, right? Peer recognition always feels very, very good. So, you know, you, you want to get up there on the pedestal and, and, uh, and be recognized if you get big opportunities and, uh, uh, you know, it's the, it's the system that gets created because it, it encourages growth and sales activity. Like just that's, that's how the system is built. That that's what their business models are built upon. And so they, you know, they create, incentive and reward systems accordingly yeah exactly yeah it really is and i i think sometimes you know it's it's like in many places in the world there's a there's a training of the mind that happens when when we just use words in particular ways we don't even realize why we're saying what we're saying and the sales culture that is pretty predominant in the larger firms in the industry still as a whole you know, fools you into getting caught up into that. And, and I certainly did then. It was a great lesson. I'm sad that it happened because, you know, obviously that was a lot of AUM, a lot of potential future revenue. But I'm, on the other side, I'm very grateful for that lesson because it's allowed me to, 
to grow my business to where it is today. And, and I'm very pleased with that. And I can teach that lesson to others and hopefully, you know, stop someone else from making the mistake of, of really doing something, um, you know, it wasn't illegal or anything like that. It didn't really harm the client necessarily, but it, you know, it wasn't fully thought through by me. And there was probably a different solution that I would have come to and, and guided them around had I stayed true to what I was doing. So, so as you looked at making this shift, because I know just you are, you are very business minded in, in how you, in how you look at this. So what were you envisioning to, to Bill? Like, was this a, a math driven thing? Like, I think the economics are going to work different and here's how it's going to work. Was this a flexibility thing? I want to serve clients differently and I can't, the platform I'm at, was this just an independence thing? I want to do it my way and not the way the firm tells me to do it. Like what, what was the, what was the driver and, and the vision for you making the shift? Yeah, I think, I think it was probably a little bit of many of those categories, frankly. Um, I've always been sort of an entrepreneurial minded person. You know, I was the, I was the kid, you know, in elementary school buying, you know, the, the box of Snickers and then, you know, selling them for twice as much or three times as much at school or, you know, these kinds of things. And I, uh, you know, it, it's, it's economical to, to be a distributor. I, I, I made some money in high school for a while. Cause I, I would do the shopping run and buy the 12 packs of soda and then take them back to the dorm and sell them for 50 cents a piece and make my markup. Yeah, absolutely. It works. And so, you know, I, for me, it was always that I had, you know, sort of objectives in my brain around, I wanted to have a particular financial lifestyle and, and, and the means that came with that. So that was part of what drove me and I could do the math. So, you know, when you said, is it a math question? So yes, I could see the math if I wanted to have this kind of, you know, annual lifestyle, this kind of income that would then support the lifestyle that I wanted. And I mentioned earlier, you know, that I have six sons. And so we had a lifestyle that, you know, demanded, you know, more mouths to be fed and cared for and educated and those types of things. But we also structured our family life in such a way that was really around our value systems, my wife and I's value systems, and and tried to instill in our children an independent form of thinking, learning to think for themselves. We actually homeschooled our children until high school, which allowed us to be more involved in the kids' lives, whether that was, you know, just being around during the day or doing, you know, activities together from travel to, you know, martial arts together to different things that we were able to, to do and be more sort of involved in their lives when they were at that age. And so, you know, if you want that kind of lifestyle, it's going to require a certain economic number and a certain, you know, structural makeup so that you can't, you know, I couldn't be at work 14 hours a day and spend time with my children. So I was very intentional about, well, if I want to have, you know, revenues of this and I only want to work, you know, this many hours and I'm going to see clients this many hours of the year. And, you know, you had to back into those processes to solve on that. And so my systems were driven by that. Some of the the norms in the industry were looked at critically. I the one employee that I have has been with me since really at the bank, actually. I hired him when I was at the bank. He's been with me that whole time. And we do process reviews all the time. We do 
what we call what not to do meetings. So we look at our systems and the things that we're doing internally and for our clients. And we say, why are we doing this? Do we need to continue to do this? Is there any value here? And we try to simplify the process or eliminate it altogether if it's not of value. And again, that comes from experience. I, I tend to, you know, jump on some technology bandwagons pretty early. And sometimes that's great. Sometimes it's not so good. You know, I, I remember clearly when there was a new, a new tool that's still out there and they're very good. I don't want to disparage any software tool, but I was, I was early on this bandwagon with this particular tool and to get the custodians I was working with to integrate and, and feed the data to this, the software you know, by the time I was all done, it was a $50,000 deal. And I was six months into it, and I realized my clients could care less about what the, the tool was doing. <laughs> and so, oh, no. you know, so it was, a, it was an expensive well, lesson, right? Well, I got to ask, like, what, what, what was it? Like, what, what should we collectively listening not spend a whole lot of time trying to integrate because our clients may not value it at the end of the day? Well, so you've heard of Black Diamond, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Yeah, so I was one of the first users of Black Diamond, and uh, you know, all the they can do a, a, an incredible amount. There's a lot of data aggregation that happens, but my clients didn't care a lick about it. They didn't, they didn't need any of that information. Didn't serve me as an advisor any differently than the custodial data that I already had, and so it was a it was a a tool that I didn't need in my toolbox. And now. You know, they service so like, yeah, here's, here's a great portfolio reporting tool. P.S. I'm going to tell you not to look at your investments because I'm handling them for you. Right. It's right. Like, oh, oh, wait, if they actually listen to me, then they're not going to log in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was just, it was, you know, it sounded great. And I went through a tremendous amount of effort and, and dollar amount for something that I didn't need to do. So, you know, trying to really be critical about those processes and, and I, one of my, I, I think it came from one of my early experiences at UPS when I was an auditor. I did an internal audit with them and you would go around and you would, you'd be going through a, a finance office and checking their procedures and processes and things. And part of that involved interviews with the, the staff and you might ask a staff person to walk through what they're doing and, and they do so. And then you, you might ask like, why are you, why is it that you do that? What's well, the way we've always done it. And that's my least favorite thing ever when I hear that from any place. That's the way we've always done it. And that's the worst reason to do anything, right? It, it, it doesn't mean that it's valuable or good or effective or efficient or productive or profitable to do any of those things. So really try to look at all of those things every day and, and improve our value proposition to our clients, but also to ourselves. So... What did the what did the business look like when you made the transition? You you made the leap. You're setting up as a a hybrid investment accounts could could quick switch with you. You had some brokerage business. A, a chunk of the business went back because of the big client that wasn't happy about the annuity. Like what what did it look like by the time you actually got your feet under you? Yeah, I mean it was you know I had about thirty million under management and I should have had about 45 million, almost 50 million under management, but left, you know, that big chunk behind. And predominant amount of that was was in the fee business. 
I don't have the exact numbers before me now, but I would say that it was, you know, about 90% into the fee business because I was intentional building something that could come with me when I left. So I was, you know, really while I was there, I was, I had the intent to, to not stay there. So I was thinking about it as I placed clients accounts and things like that when I was at the bank and when I was at American Express. So just like, these are people that might come with me. So like illiquid, not movable proprietary solutions, probably not the best choice. Like, let's just leave them in something that's a little bit more flexible so that if I transition, they do want to come with me, they will actually be able to do so and not be tied up elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. You have to have a plan to leave as you enter. Right. So that was, that was my exact plan was to, to do that. So yeah, when we started, it was predominantly in the fee business and, you know, the plan was to then have a, a spot for those other dollars as they either could be transitioned or were out of, you know, if there's any surrender charges or whatnot, that we could move them as time allowed. And so you said you were like predominantly probably 90% fee business. So the, the rest was, what's like uh, trails on annuities and, and things like that. that yeah, you- I had some C-share business. I had a little bit of annuity, not a... Not a ton, but mostly C shares, a few B share, mutual funds, things like that. Few annuities, some variable insurance. So for for those who aren't aren't familiar, since they've been gone for a while now, so B shares were something where, well, you know, A shares like commissions paid up front, client is debited for it up front. So you know they they put in a hundred grand, but only. 95 or something gets invested because the other 5% goes to the the agent uh, or, or the broker. You know, your alternative is C-shares where you're getting paid 1% a year. So back in the 90s, there was a, a, a third version called B-shares. And B-shares would pay the broker upfront kind of like A-shares for 5%. But the client wouldn't see the outflow immediately. You know, you put in 90, 100 grand, but only 95 credits to your account. The client would put in 100 and 100 would credits to their account. But B shares had expense ratios like C shares. So, you know, there would sort of be an extra 1% a year drag. And the client would have a surrender charge schedule associated with the B share. So, you know, it might be if it paid you 5% up front, you know, the client would have a five year, 5% surrender charge schedule that would step down by 1% a year. So the company would eventually recover the 1% over the span of five years. If the client left early, the balance would have to be repaid as a surrender charge, but otherwise the advisor could get paid upfront without having it come out of the client all upfront immediately. Cause that was, and still is not terribly popular. Exactly. That's exactly right. So, yeah. So just allowing the right timing for those to get out of those types of share classes was the the reason for having the hybrid. Okay. So even as you transitioned with the hybrid, the it sounds like the goal or plan was over time, like the you know the the C shares will able to be replaced. The B shares will get out of surrender schedule. The annuities will get out of surrender schedule. And that you you oh even when you went hybrid, you had a mind that this was a this was a waypoint, not a destination for you. Absolutely, yeah. It was a transitional tool so that I could work with the clients in the right way at the right timing, and you know really they knew where I was going with this, but it allowed me that opportunity to 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 do it at the right time for them and not force it to happen, you know, cause cause their accounts to be either split between another institution and me 
or to force it, you know, where they're in a surrender and they, you know, that wouldn't be prudent. So when ultimately then was the transition where you said like, I'm, I'm just not doing this stuff at all anymore. I'm going to get rid of the, the broker dealer relationship. Yeah. So I did that a few years later when there was essentially just very little, you know, assets and very little revenue involved in that part of the world. And it just became a, really an operational burden when we started looking at it from sort of, you know, the dual sets of records, right? So you had to have um, client files for the brokerage side, registered rep side, and then you had to have the files for the SEC, for the RIA side. And I had an SEC uh, random audit and, you know, they kept wanting to go over into the brokerage side of things. And I'm like, well, that's not that's not part of it. So it just added, you know, a lot of extra like baloney, you know, and it was confusing for the clients, honestly. They would, you know, they'd be getting a statement from BISIS or wherever the, you know, brokerage accounts were held at. And then they were getting, you know, the custodial account statements that I was providing them. And it just became this, you know, why can't we just get this all cleaned up? And so we just, you know, sort of the old scuttle your ships, right? You draw the line in the sand and this is it. And I was able to, I found an insurance agent that could take over the the variable products, the insurance products. And then I had another advisor. Someone who would be friendly, like I'll, I'll take care of them and I won't try to take all of the rest of the client relationship from you. I'll, I'll respect the relationship. Yep. Yep. And then I had a, another advisor, like you suggested earlier, you know, there's plenty of people in your community that, that would be happy to work with certain clientele. And I had, I had an advisor that I had trained and was at, you know, his own firm and it's a smaller firm. And so I literally handed him a few of the remaining little clients that were in there. And he actually knew a couple of the people in there. So that worked out great. So how did you look at it at that point for clients that did still want or need annuity solutions in insurance solutions. You know, I mean, I get it on the sort of like the B and C share mutual fund side. At some point you can transition them to advisory shares and, and run them in an advisory account. But as someone that had you know, been involved in annuity and insurance solutions for clients, like how did you look at that piece of the puzzle? Because there, there weren't, weren't, I mean, there aren't many RA products today in those categories. There really was almost nothing back then in those categories. Yeah, there was literally nothing of quality then for sure and very very little to choose from. So, you know, that that's a bit and that's still a big challenge for people today, you know, to think about, you know, I again, how do I handle this? And mostly I think if they were honest with themselves, they would say, how do I handle this because I know the paydays on these things are large and I don't want to really give that up. And for me it was a couple things. I was decent at insurance work and the planning that goes with that, but I didn't ever feel like that was my gift. You know, that was one part of it. I knew the revenue side of that. I I neglected in my story earlier to share with you one of the things that I, I got sucked into that whole production mentality when I was uh, at the bank. Well, that actually started when I was at Ameriprise. I was their top producer as a new guy nationally. They used to rank people. And the reason I was I think one of the reasons I was successful in that regard was I started figuring out, I deconstructed their compensation plan right away and figured out if I matched up products really well, 
you know, if I sold this long-term care policy along with this life policy and this mutual fund series, I would get this bonus pay and things like this. And it, it really woke me up quickly when I realized I was getting away from my, you know, again, what I wanted to do. To me, it's just, it's another interesting one of those sort of shooting on yourself yes. scenario. Right? Yeah, the, you know, the, exactly. The, you know, the platform sets up the rules of the game. And if you're not careful, you get sucked into playing the rules of the game and suddenly you're you're playing their game for their reward system and not, you know, not your game, like not, not whatever you actually want to build for yourself. And, and obviously it's great if what you want to build for yourself also happens to drive growth for your platform. Like they provide services, they are entitled to make money, but just recognizing like, you know, uh, you know, whose game are you playing yours or someone else's when you're trying to figure out what, what success means and what you're working towards. Right. Right. So I, I was really, this time around, I was much more cautious to that temptation and realized this is not my gift. This is not where I'm I'm best serving my clients. And so I found a gentleman in my community that he actually now, his business model is to service RIAs that don't handle the insurance side of things. And he's really good at what he does. He's a CFP He's, you know, very sharp and he's focused only on the insurance side of things. He doesn't handle the investment side. He doesn't handle the financial planning piece of it, but he partners with me in that regard and and then handles the insurance. And so that's how I've solved it for me is that I bring clients that need that work because it's still, you know, a, a valuable part of planning and a needed solution for many people. So I, I take it to him. So can I... Can I ask, like, who who is that, and does he work with other RAs that have the same problem of you trying trying to find people who are knowledgeable on insurance who struggle with this? Because it is the irony to me of how insurance companies have evolved over the past twenty years. You know, it used to be insurance agents were insurance agents, and now insurance agent insurance companies have subsidiary broker dealers, and you can do insurance and investments and and five twenty nines and everything across the spectrum. And, you know, that's cool for broadening the base of what you do, but it makes it harder to work with other advisors because now you kind of compete with them when, you know, you're insurance only and that's what you do well. And you work with someone else who's not insurance and that's what they do well. You actually get a lot more strategic partnership opportunities. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, absolutely. I So the, the company's called Insurance Design Management and the gentleman that I'm referring to, he's got a big long name, but it's Brandon Dirk Schneider. You know, anybody in your audience that would, you know, want to work with Brandon are happy to, you know, I'm happy to make that introduction for you guys in your audience. But his team is great. There's another, you know, another woman on his staff that's a CFP and he's got a, you know, a nice team. So they they do really good work. So for folks that are listening, this is episode 170. So if you go to kittens.com slash 170, we'll have... Uh, links out for insurance design management. If you're struggling with this, cap yourself and trying to find someone to work with in in making the transition. So, so Patrick, what did it look like for the business then as you as you made the transition? Was this so like okay, I'm going to have to take one step back and walk away from some of this revenue because I think ultimately I can outgrow it, or had you just sort of weaned it down enough that it wasn't going to be too painful from a revenue end? Like, how did the what what happened in the business as you made the the transition away from the the brokerage insurance yeah, licenses? That's a great question, Michael. I so for me, I had a, a you know a window of time based again on where I was trying to go with my family and whatnot, and I grew the business pretty significantly from there. I 
we pretty much, not quite four, but more than tripled the business really pretty quickly. I think it was clarity of message, confidence in my in my work, some good marketing and and those kinds of things. So you 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 started like actively marketing fee only and 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 going that direction. Yep, I did that in my community and you know, I I live in a, you know, not a super small community, but you know, compared to much of your audience, Omaha, Nebraska is not a giant community. There's a lot of wealth here. There's a lot of really great people. And the message, that the fee-only message, really resonated in a couple of places. It resonated with the, the prospective client and the, and the clients that I have and had. And uh, it also resonated really well with other professionals. So when I was talking to CPAs or you know guys like I mentioned, Brandon, et cetera, those kinds of folks you know, could relate to attorneys. And so they were less hesitant to refer people to me is what happened because they knew that I would come alongside in their planning processes, work for the client's best interest, play in my own sandbox as well as in theirs nicely. And so it was just a a really good combination. And being in the middle part of the country and a little bit more conservative part of the world, you know, having a fee only advisory firm was fairly new. Like it was a new thing for me to be saying right, we're, that we're mid two thousands. This is 15 years ago. Like not, not a lot of people in that space yet. Fee based literally wasn't even a thing. Cause that drove off a regulatory change in 2007. And there just wasn't much of a fee only community yet. Right. Right. So, you know, people not, ever hearing that before. So sometimes being in a smaller community and having a new idea, it can take a little while to get some traction, but it can also be a refreshing kind of new thing. So that that helped me. So we grew quite nicely. Was this literally like he only just resonated so well in Omaha in the mid 2000s? Like you just told everybody you were and suddenly the business triples in in a in a few years, it wasn't magical. It was a lot of hard work. Obviously, I I have done lots of traditional marketing. You know, I did the the seminar circuit, like many people. I happen to have a client base that is very focused on the the upper level executives that have you know concentrated stock portfolios, and so I I work a lot in the transportation world with my background in. UPS, and there happens to be a large railroad that's from Omaha, Nebraska. Union Pacific Railroad is headquartered here. TD Ameritrade is headquartered here. ConAgra was headquartered here. So I, I had a lot of really good executive clients that you know introduced me to others. And then I also have a kind of an entrepreneurial client base. It'd be the other part of my my clientele, both from my speaking and coaching work that I do, but you know, just naturally here in our community, there was some smaller businesses that, you know, became bigger or were sold or things like that. And so it was a combination of me sharing that with the right people. So for example, the Union Pacific Railroad is really, well, now it's three companies. It used to be four companies internally. And, you know, when it was four, the the three heads of those four parts of UP were clients of mine. And so, you know, they have a lot of people underneath them and uh, that helps. So it was again, focusing on the right kind of person. It seems like a slow Kindle, 
But once you get real clear about who you're helping and do good work for them, they guess what? They hang around with other people that look like them. So just that that compounding effect of building into a niche and getting known in that niche of of people in transportation industry, people at Union Pacific Railroad, and then letting that reputation grow by staying focused there. Yeah, that's helped a tremendous amount. I've always spent a fair amount of you know, on marketing as a, you know, again, trying to approach it from a business standpoint in, you know, the last six or seven years, I've done a lot more with, you know, the new types of marketing, social media marketing and, and the like, but yeah, it's, so it was, it was a combination of all those things. A lot of people are always looking for, you know, how do I find new clients? And, you know, there is no one answer to it. You know, they're everywhere. You just have to try a lot of places. You have to take what I would call an experimenter's mindset. And then that data nerd thing that you mentioned earlier and pay attention to, you know, don't get too caught up in your convictions, right? You think this might work and you design it and you build it and you're really convicted that it'll work. And if you're not paying attention to the data, you might be very, very wrong. So so what does the business look like today in terms of uh, client households or assets under management or, or revenue, however you you measure at this point, can you paint us a snapshot of what it where it stands today? Yep. Yeah. So we're right at about 150 million. It depends on the day, right? So yep. uh, <laughs> markets go up or markets go down. Yeah. Right, right. Just under 90 clients. So we have 89 clients, and I I consider a client household as a client. So I would say 89 households as clients and. You know, very blessed to have some, you know, very long-term clients and yet some, you know, new amazing people that we're working with. But again, mostly those clients are in those two categories. They're either entrepreneurial types or they're executives that have a pretty, pretty concentrated position in the companies that they work for. And so what does this look like from a business model perspective, particularly if you're still working with executives that may have a lot of stock tied up in you know, illiquid stock at their company. Are are you an assets owner management model on the 150 million and just cover everything as part of a holistic relationship? Are you in the world of other fee models as well? How do, how does that work from an actual revenue generation perspective? Yeah, I'm, I'm in I'm in both worlds. So um, I definitely still have you know predominance in the AUM model, but I do have the recurring revenue type models and the planning side, and so I do not count. I know many <laughs> firms like to count assets under advisement, but I don't think the SEC really cares for that term too much. So I don't count assets that I'm not being, you know, that I'm not charging a, an AUM fee for. So that so, so the 150 million like is is really actually AUM. That's AUM, and then managed, mm-hmm. not not just advisement, right? Okay. So I have hundreds of millions more that are sitting out there in stock options plans and matches at, you know, in retirement accounts and things like this that I'm not presently, I'm not counting in that number, but I do charge, you know, planning fees annual or, or, um, you know, split up throughout the year. I've played with different frequencies and models of planning fees from monthly recurring revenue type models. And the SEC doesn't like certain terms used with that, right? But so I've, they're I've, a little little wary of the word retainer, right? If they're paying you up, they're paying you up front for a retainer. What happens if they terminate you? How does the retainer of refundability work? Right, just 
Un- unearned fees is always a priority for regulators, as it as it, as it should, should be. be, right? Right, exactly. So I've played with all those models. There's pros and cons to all of them, and yeah. So I live in a little bit of all those, and I'm always, you know, I'm I'm an experimenter, so I'm I'm open to trying new methodologies. There's certainly there's the you know firms or advisors that are billing based on you know household income and things of that nature as well. And so how do you ultimately set planning fees? Like, do you, do you, I know you're not reporting out on about assets on our advisement, but are you still ultimately setting a fee tying to the, the total assets you're advising on out there or, or like a complexity model? Just how do you figure out what fee you're going to charge when you've got clients with large dollar amounts that are not part of the AUM? Yeah. So I've really, again, I've tried to simplify my, my billing models over the years because it, it gets, it's again, it's one of these areas where randomness and too many different fee structures creates complexity that then is, you know, has to be managed somewhere in your processes. And so I've pretty much settled on on fixed fees at different levels. And it's it's really a combination of net worth, income, and uh, complexity, right? Because they're they're usually associated. So I have just three tiers of fixed fees, and then I have just one AUM fee that I charge. And 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 what are the what are the tiers like? How, where where do your fee structures fall for your typical clientele? Yeah, so I have a I have a minimum that I'll accept on a on a flat planning fee of eight thousand dollars, and that's an annualized basis. And then the other two tiers are higher than that, right? So I have a, a 12,000 and then I have a 16,000. And these just kind of get lined up like, you know, if, if your net worth is more than X or your income is more than Y, or I judge your complexity to be Z, I may put you in tier A or tier B or our minimum is tier C. Yep. And we have a little, you know, marketing piece that goes with that to explain the, you know, gold, platinum and silver kind of thinking. It's not labeled that, please don't think that, but that's, that's sort of the, the idea that that the client would see, but that's that's exactly right. And in meanwhile, like the structure around this is, it's it's you and one other person. And we outsource. You know, I mean, from a, a people working on things standpoint, we have you know outsourced marketers. We have outsourced compliance companies. I have people doing my books and you know my financial you know accounting that kind of thing. So I have other people. But I have found, and I've had more than one employee before, I've had teams of five or six over the years, that it just adds a level of, of baloney that you don't need. And it's little things. It's the person knocking on your door, hey, do you have a quick second? You know, it's, it's the, you know, my water heater blew up, I'm going to be late. Uh, hey, can we have a meeting to talk about the Christmas party? I mean, it's all these different little things that are fine for many, but for me, contracted work is way more efficient, way more nimble. And frankly, I like to, it's one of my mentors always talked about, it's a Midwest term, but having a belt and suspenders. So, and for those that don't know what I'm talking about, you wear a belt to hold your pants up and suspenders go over your shoulders to hold your pants up. And so if you're wearing a belt and suspenders, that's in case your belt 
breaks or your suspenders break, your pants still stay up. So when you're working, and so for you, like the having contractors, contractors creates like some of those redundancies, or, or like the you know the like the belt and, belt and suspenders overlap. Yeah. So what I do is I like to hire in pairs oftentimes. So for example, I have two videographers because they bring different skills. They have different vantage points, business, business experience, style, all of that. So in my creative teams, I have multiple people, my accounting people. There's a couple people that work on my, my books and my accounting work. So I have different sets of eyes and what that does for you without the overhead of hiring multiple people is it allows you to see how the quality of the people that you have around you and the things that you wouldn't have noticed. So there's oftentimes things that you think are going great until you hire a new person or a new, and you're like, dang, I never knew you could do that. Or that's an incredibly different way to look at that. And that's awesome. And you get that when you hire in redundancy and, and it's very expensive to do that with actual, you know, onboarded people that are on your payroll. And, and so you're like, you're literally hiring redundant people, like every project gets double bid or is this just more of like, I, uh, you know, I hired, I hired an accounting firm that has multiple contractors to work on my books. So they have overlap, not like I literally have two CPAs from different firms that both run my books twice just to check each other. No, right. It would be more redundancies like that. I, for example, the two videographer example is a little cleaner example. That would be true on the accounting side. I do have another person that does look at my books though from a my own business planning right so i have a a different professional tax he's actually a tax attorney and a cpa that gives is a guide to me right an advisor to me in, in addition to the people that do my books and and my records but in the videographer world they're completely different contractors and i rotate amongst them and oftentimes i'll bring both of them and an additional one to say one of my events to to video the event and you get very different, you know, just different, all together, different equipment, different angles, different, you know, creative work that happens. And it's a really, it's a very efficient way to do it. And I do that with, you know, writers that are writing copy for me, any of that website design, I'll, I'll have a couple people look at it. And in the long run, it may seem a little bit like it could be too expensive or, inefficient or those kind of things but in the long run you get a much better outcome you 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 see you know errors you see weakness you see lack of of creativity a lot faster well and and when you're running a core business of 150 million dollars of AUM with one staff member you 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 drive some free cash flow to be able to do this and invest in quality <laughs> like the right some of those business decisions trade off so I, I am struck though that you had said like you did the transition to fee only, you know, the marketing push around it tripled your business, which would have put you you well over a hundred million dollars by you know oh six or oh seven. You're at 150 million today. You know, markets up almost that much just from pre-crisis highs with with growths. So it seems like you you know you like you got to a number ten plus almost fifteen years ago and I've not necessarily moved it a lot since then. So I, I just, I, I know, can you like reflect on that or your, your, your thinking around it? I mean, the, the old saying is if you're not growing, you're dying, right? Just like that's out there. I think we feel a lot of that pressure, 
you are not necessarily running the business that way, or at least from from what I can see. So how do you how do you think about that challenge and like the the whole saying, if you're not growing, you're dying. Yeah. Well, I I think there is some truth to if you're not growing, you're dying. But there's also in a holistic picture, you have to look at where you're growing and 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 what's happening. And so that was by intent. I mentioned my family a few times during our conversation. I'm right at the end of my youngest of those six boys finishing up high school. He's a junior in high school. And, you know, I've got about a year and a half until he'll be out of our home. And we'll be, for a long time, I used to say we were half nesters instead of empty nesters, but just because of the size of our family. But that period of time, I wanted to be extremely available, especially for sons. It's really important you know, time of life, their teenage years, their early college years, and and just to be available to them as they transition into adulthood. So one of my objectives was to get my business to a particular level and then allow myself the structure and the and the cash flow to to do the things that my wife and I and our children wanted to do. And so that's been a great part of the last several years has been watching our sons get through the various things. And I have sons in all kinds of different positions in life now and, um, you know, starting to be engaged and, you know, watching their professional careers launch and, and that. And that was part of it. The other part is that I've, I've done some other business in the coaching and, and consulting side of our industry for a, a number of years now. And that was accidental a little bit right at the, you know, the beginning of this period of time. I was, I'm sure you're familiar with Strategic Coach, Dan Sullivan's program out of Canada. And many advisors back in the in the early 2000s and still today were in strategic coach programs. And I was in in coach in the early 2000s. And they kind of, they frame you up based on the size of your business and your experiences and things like that. And I, uh, I had been in the, in the program for a couple of years when another set of advisors in my community had joined strategic coach. So they were if I could say it this way, they were behind me, meaning they were newer in in the coaching program. So they were asking their coach if there was anybody else in our community that was involved. And so they introduced us and uh, went to breakfast, you know, those kinds of things, got to know each other. And over time, we, you know, we were sharing ideas and learning. And eventually the, this kind of led into this, hey, Patrick, do you think we could just have you coach us? Would you be our coach and mentor? And I was like, sure, you know, never done that really formally before. <laughs> so we figured that out and I started doing that with them. And one thing led to another and I, I started this coaching program and I've been doing that now for about six years. And I'm, I'm on some national uh, entrepreneurial platforms, not just financial advisor platforms, but some famous, well-known kind of social media influencers have me in their training programs and I've spent, uh, you know, quite a bit of time speaking and teaching in that world. So I have really three businesses now. And is is there a particular kind of advisor that you you coach or or focus on? Like, what's the what's the usual profile? Someone that wants to make this sort of lean, mean, efficient built to, lean, mean, efficient business built around themselves, as you have, or or other focal areas? You know, it's an interesting question. When I when I first I I have a 
I have an online course and things that I kind of socialize my teaching on for those who just want an introductory version of me. And I, I wrote that and, and the book and the, the course materials and the videos that went with it for that individual that was, was like me. You know, they were at a large bank or they were at a, a large, you know, warehouse or brokerage firm and they wanted to go off and start their own thing. And that's who I, I created that for. Well, and many people that have purchased that and have worked with me there are those kind of people. But I also have really two other audiences. And the other audience that was a little surprising to me were the, the good-sized firms that were with an independent broker-dealer. Um, I'm working with a firm in the Minneapolis area that's a billion AUM firm that's with an independent you know, brokerage firm. And they're, they've hired me to help them start their own RIA and to leave that broker dealer. And that, that's, that's that transitional work. And then the other sort of surprise from that was that person that found me through social media and whatnot, came to the entrepreneurial conferences that I speak at, that maybe they have a degree in business or finance and they had not thought about the financial advisory business and they want to get into it for the first time. And, and it's very cool. It's actually a lot of fun on all three fronts. The, the first one that looked like me is, you know, the typical, very qualified person, but doesn't really know how to structure the business. And, and then the big firms, they have the structure of the business, but they're so kind of tied up with, with you know, they've worked with this particular independent broker dealer that they don't know how else to structure it. And then the new person knows nothing. So it's kind of fun. So I have to ask, as someone that is sort of, you know, a data-driven guy, having brought all that with you in, in you know, the rigor of, of UPS training, you know, measure and quantify, evaluate everything, like what metrics do you track that are important to you as, as an advisory firm business owner? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the things that I really try to teach people is to – turn those financial statements that I talked in about earlier and particularly the profit and loss and unitize it. So, so many of us run it on a monthly, quarterly, annually, you know, with dollars only, and maybe they might compare to the previous year, same period or things like this, but they seldom unitize or periodize their, their P&Ls. So they don't know what their ratios are per, say, a dollar of revenue or per a client, right? So per a unit. So I try to measure my expenses by a unit of revenue, and I want my revenue numbers to be at a level per client family that I serve. So I'm trying to set those and measure those and monitor those. And and they're going to be different for everybody. Can you give us an, an example of just like how they break down for you? Because I think most of us are so not used to thinking about things like expenses per unit of revenue and, and ratios. Like, grand different firms will have different targets, but like, what 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 sorts of targets do you measure and set? Like, how do you actually look at these? Yeah. So, for example, I I don't want the revenue for any client to be below those minimal fees that I I structured to you before. So that's all in. So if I've got somebody that's under you know, under those kind of numbers, then I've got to really look at what the heck am I doing uh, at those kind of numbers. And most of my clients, you know, are going to be well over those numbers, but that's sort of a, if you think of it as a floor, 
that's how I think of that. So just make sure every client has a, a certain minimum revenue per client, which as long as you've got the right servicing structure in place means every client should be profitable. You don't need you know big clients to completely cross subsidize small clients. Right, exactly. So if you if you had a minimum revenue number of ten thousand dollars, you know, or eight thousand or five, you know, whatever it might be. So even five thousand and you're gonna work with a hundred families, that's a half a million dollar revenue top line revenue. And so then if you're using your expense measurements and they're unitized against the dollar of revenue, you can see, oh, you know, people forget like all these subscriptions are not that much or these things that can creep up on you, those little cancers. And, you know, the obvious things that are super expensive are, you know, rents and payrolls and and benefits, you know, uh, insurance in particular. So trying to keep a handle on those I had a couple offices in Omaha for a number of years, and I started watching my my revenue as a as a dollar. I mean, my rent as a dollar of revenue go up, and I thought, "What am I doing? This is just for my own ego to have multiple offices. My clients aren't going to care if they have to drive an extra ten minutes. So let's find the the coolest, best serving you know our clients and me office, and we shut the other one down. So what what surprised you the most around? trying to build an advisory business? I, I think that I look at other industries a lot when I'm looking at growing my business. And I think the early on, the frustration for me was the lack of efficiencies I could gain through technology. It was, you know, our industry is very slow to get to that game and still in some ways are. You know, I've used, I've used a lot of other industries tools along the way to try to get better at you know, whether it's CRMs or, you know, I've, I was back in the day customizing Salesforce and things like that. Are there still any technology tools you use for the business that are not traditional tools that are outside the industry? I would say probably they're, they're now more common, but I, I would still like, you know, active campaign and social media sided things that you're probably familiar with. Are, are less common on the on the advisory side. If I speak about those, I'll oftentimes have half the room come up to me afterwards and go, what, what is that tool again? What does that do? You know, HubSpot, any of those kind of things. The tools are way, way better, as you know, now than even five years ago. And so that was probably, yeah, that was probably the biggest frustration early on was I had to patch a lot of things together, had to have some more manual pieces that I didn't, didn't care for probably slowed me up the you know i remember i remember going to you know kind of electronic files right and i had i had years of paper sitting in these locked and fireproof file cabinets and trying to figure out how i was going to quickly get to an electronic you know state with these and so we just again drew a line in the sand and every new client and every new piece of paper for an existing client that came in got scanned and we worked our way backward as we could with the old stuff. So just patience and persistence was probably the the hardest game I had to learn. So what was the low point for you? The low point, probably actually the low point for me would have been right away when I started and I lost all those clients. Thought you were going to go out with 30, with 50 million, ended out with 30 million. Like that's that's 40% of what I thought I was going to use to pay my bills. That's not coming through. Right. And then to pile on, if you remember what was happening in that period of time, that was the dot-com bubble. 
you know, period. Yeah, so mar- market's crashing, 9-11 happens, recession is on. Yep, I ended up in the hospital for a week with, with some in- internal bleeding stuff in my digestive system that I thought was an ulcer from all this stuff happening. And it really wasn't. It was health-related that I, you know, was able to, to work on and, and have been much healthier because of it. But, you know, at that time, I was like, what the heck am I doing? Yeah, there's nothing like breaking away and ending out in the hospital. Be like, oh my gosh, what did I just do to myself? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so how like how do you move forward from that? I mean, I think there are a lot of people who would say like, okay, well, that was a mistake. We're going to go back and find another job and not do that again. Yeah, you know, that's a great question is why, why does that happen? And I think probably um, it helped that I had, you know, the, the responsibility of a family and children. And that was my, that was really my motive and still is my motive in life is to be, you know, a good father, a good husband, you know, a provider, all those kinds of things, traditional role of, of, you know, fatherhood and whatnot. And, you know, I'm also kind of a, a person that is interested in learning and I've always been a very curious person. And so when I, you know, get over the initial shock of a, of a, you know, a setback, then I'm usually sitting there going, all right, what just happened? Why did that happen? What can I learn from it? How can I improve? And and sort of the, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger mentality. Cool. So, so what comes next for you? Yeah, great question. I have really enjoyed this period of time of teaching and speaking and coaching. And, you know, I've got some, some things I'm working on that are hopefully going to be able to be used for a broader audience in that regard. And so I've got some, some courses I've shot about a hundred lessons for some other courses that I'm working on that are more uh, finance related for different segments of the world, entrepreneurs, married couples, things of that nature. So I'm, I'm hopeful that that will be valuable to somebody, right. That they'll find that uh, interesting. I also plan to do a bit more speaking in the coming years as my my youngest son is I mentioned coming to the end of his high school career I'll have a little bit more ability to not miss out on his events if I'm traveling and and I I hope to do that I've been you know speaking probably half a dozen times a year now um, nothing like your schedule but no uh, I don't recommend my schedule to anyone yeah <laughs> <laughs> but I'm thinking you know it's it's fun I I speak at both industry and non-industry events and I I really like the non-industry events as well because I I speak to typically their entrepreneurial audiences that really are hungry for understanding finances better in in relation to their business. So it's quite enjoyable. So as we wrap up, this is a a podcast about success, and and one of the themes that always comes up is the the word success means different things to different people, or as we've said, otherwise you start shooting on yourself. So you you know you you built this. You know, I think anyone would call very objectively successful business. So, uh, you know, one hundred and fifty million dollars and eighty nine clients as a individual advisor with one staff member. So, you know, certainly it, it, it works economically. How, how do you define success for yourself at this point? Yeah, I think at this point for me, it's it's how how I use my time. Am I using my time well, and do I have the ability to to focus my time and my efforts where they should be. And it's not just about the freedoms that come from business. A lot of people that are are entrepreneurial minded or or whatnot, 
want freedom is what they say. And I, I think that's not the complete answer. I think the, the, the better answer is to use that freedom well, to serve others well, and to, you know, use the gifts that I've been given well. That's how I define it. I love that. I love that. Just, uh, it's, it's not just about getting the freedom. It's what you actually do with the freedom and time uh, once you get there. Well, wonderful. Thank you, Patrick, so much for joining us and sharing the journey on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Uh, I've really uh, enjoyed this. It's been a great pleasure and honor to be with you, and I've, I've really enjoyed your work. So keep up the good work. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.